Uh, If you would with me, uh, please open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We are in the final um, uh, letter uh, to the seven churches. Revelation 3 chapter uh, verses 14 through 22. I'm going to read it and then we'll go back through it together. It says, And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I I, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, may we have the Spirit, Lord, to hear, the ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. Open our, our hearts, Lord, and remove the blindness from our eyes that we may see and give us the ability to understand and not only to understand, to move in the direction that you are calling us to as your children. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, this is the final letter. Uh, again, the seventh letter to, written to the seventh church. Sorry about that. I want to see you skip once again. Give you a hard time. <laughs> Gonna be in trouble. That's good. And uh, this is written to Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was about 45 miles southwest of uh, Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia, Asia Minor, 2,000 years ago. You can see it, it's always on the very bottom right there. Uh, Laodicea, uh, it's about 90 miles east of Ephesus. and it was clustered together with three cities, three cities you could see, like from each, each of them from, uh, from uh, just with your naked eye, you could see them. Um, one close by was Colossae, it was about 10 miles east, and was known for their cool waters. And then you had another one called uh, Hierolopis, uh, Hierolopis, or whatever it is, um, Hierapolis, there we go, which is about six miles north. And so you had this cluster of cities there, and they were known for their hot springs. And so you had cold water, you had hot springs. And uh, Laodicea, interestingly enough, was built on a plateau. And uh, it was near a river, but the river dried up often. And so they had to kind of find another water source to be shipped in. And so they had an underground aqueduct from about five miles south uh, from a hot spring that brought their water in some distance away. And so that was interesting. Uh, Laodicea uh, was located in the junction of two critical roads. And again, I'm saying all this because it's pertinent to what we're going to talk about. But Laodicea was 
uh, located in the junction of two critical uh, roads. One was an east-west road from Ephesus that went inland. And Ephesus, if you remember, was on the coast as a port. And so they were just right smack dab in the middle of a gateway to basically the eastern territories there. And so all the trading went through them from east to west. Well, it also went from north to south. And the north, uh, one of those cities up there, all the way down through, uh, through their city and on into the Mediterranean Sea. And so the Laodiceans uh, were, were right in the middle of a major trading area, and they really capitalized on that. And in being in the middle of that, it became a, a real critical city for commerce, you can imagine. Um, the Laodiceans had the corner on the market in their own little way. They had a, not a major way, actually. They were known for their soft black wool, so they raised uh, black sheep and, and basically had black wool. They used those for making carpet, carpets and all this type of uh, clothing and bags and all this kind of stuff. So it was rare and it was in super high demand. And so it was very prosperous for them uh, financially uh, where they were located and what they sold and imported and exported. They're also uh, known, uh, in addition to the black wool, they were um, known for their medicine, uh, particularly in ISAV that they produced, which was later found to scientists to just be basically putting dirt in your eye. But um, everybody loved it. You know, if you, got, if, if you don't have glasses and it's 2,000 years ago, you're willing to do a lot to be able to see. And so uh, apparently you got this miracle dirt and, and anyways, they, they capitalized on it, sold it all over the world, right? And so the city was strategically placed for trading and, and man, these people were rich. They were rolling in it. Uh, this was an, an absolutely rich city. And because of all this trading, they were the center for banking. Uh, they had a lot of, uh, there's some historical notes and I won't drag you all through that, but basically People are cashing in their checks there and stuff like that. So there was a banking center as well. And just to give you an idea about how, how well off the city was, remember I told you a couple times that like in the early uh, first century that a couple cities were destroyed by earthquakes and, and Rome came in and helped them rebuild and so they gave tribute to Rome. Well, in 60 AD, uh, Laodicea was devastated by an earthquake. So towards the end of the first century there, devastated by an earthquake. But in Rome goes, hey, let us help you rebuild because you're part of Rome and all that type of stuff. And they're like, nah, we got it. <laughs> and so they flat out funded their own rebuilding project. So they're, they're not, you know, they, they basically said no to federal funds. I mean, so that tells you what in the world's going on there. They're just, there's a lot of money rolling on in the city. Uh, and you can only imagine what it would cost to rebuild a city. So with banking and with wool production and this ISOV thing and all the trade that was going on there, they're in the midst of a very wealthy and materialistic culture. That's what was going on there. And all these play, things played in to what the Lord Jesus had to say to the church in Laodicea, as we're going to see. Sadly, as we will see, Laodicea was only one of two churches that the Lord had nothing good to say about. Um, so you came on that Sunday, just to let you know. Um, <laughs> nothing good to say, nothing to commend, only correction. And so as the letter opens, uh, the Lord introduces himself to the church as he always does. He calls himself in the rest in verse 14, the rest of verse 14, he says, he calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so the Lord identifies himself in his opening of his letter. As he always does, there's something important about who he identifies himself to be that he's trying to communicate to the church he's talking to. 
And so the Laodiceans read this, and, and Jesus identifies himself in three ways. First of all, real quickly, he is the amen. He calls himself the amen. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, we throw the term around amen a lot, right? Amen? Amen. Okay, yeah, we do. So, so what, what in the world are we doing there? So when we pray, quite often at the end we say, in Jesus' name, amen, right? And that's not saying over and out, like, that's not saying, like, <laughs> tell next time, Lord, see you again, all that kind of stuff. That is not what's going on there. Amen is a declaration that means that's the truth. We're all in agreement. That's the truth. That's the idea. The idea is that when we're praying, we, 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 what we are saying is true in its accordance to the truth of God, and therefore we say, amen, let it be so. I agree. It's an affirmation of the truth. That's what, when we say amen, is. Amen? So that's what I'm trying. When I'm doing that to you, I'm getting a response going, yeah, that's, that's true, you know? And some of you going, ah, no, <laughs> you know? So when Jesus calls himself the amen, Jesus is actually saying he is the amen. He is the truth that everything has to be reconciled to. He is the truth. It's another way of saying he's the truth. Amen. Uh, God is called. That's right. You're going to hear me say it a lot. Now you're going to pick up on it and you guys are going to start getting sassy. Um, Got to keep it real. Uh, but Isaiah 65, 16 Jesus, uh, God is called the God of truth. That is who he is. He is true. Everything else in this world, uh, wherever you're going, you want to look to God for truth. You want to look to what he says about everything and how to live and what to be and what to think about in your politics and everything else that divides. You want to look to his truth. What is he, what does he say about all these things? That's the important thing. And Jesus is saying, uh, Jesus is that which is true. He is unchanging. He is fixed. He's immovable. He is the amen. Yes, amen, Skip. Secondly, Jesus says he's a faithful and true witness. So just kind of building on, on that, not only is he truth, is he the amen, he is the witness of truth. What he says and does is true. So Jesus is doubling down on truth here, which tells you, what do you think the Lord's dealing with in this church? They have moved away from what? The amen. They've moved away from the faithful and true witness. There's something else that's creeping in there. And so Jesus is not only the truth, uh, he's the, not only the amen, what he does testifies to that truth. Make sense? And, and it's important, as we'll see, Laodicea had become indifferent to the tr truth. And lastly, Jesus calls himself the beginning of God's creation. He's the beginning of of God's creation. Now, the, there was um, this. I just want to clarify this. This term, the beginning of God's creation, isn't saying that He is the first created. That's not what's going on. Colossi, which was just a stone's throw away from this church, was dealing with a heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, at its core, basically said that God was an originally flawed God, and then there were several emanations, these several beings that were descended from God, basically. And that uh, through secret knowledge and all this type of stuff, you can step up the ladder and, and become more spiritual. I'm getting confused too. Don't worry about it. It's, it's confusing. But the idea is that they denied that Jesus Christ, his deity. That was one of the, the major things. They denied his deity and they also put an over-spiritualized in everything to the point where it didn't make a difference what you kind of did in the flesh because all that mattered was really the spiritual. And so you had a real 
the, the, the end result was you denied the deity of Jesus Christ and you had a real carnal church. And that teaching was creeping into the church around this time. John deals with it. It's dealt with here too. And, and by the way, we've got that teaching going on right now. You know, you can say you're a Christian, but live however you want. And there can be this divorce in those things. So you've got a real carnal church. Well, I think here Jesus could be addressing that by saying, hey, listen, I am not, I am the, when he's saying he's the beginning, he's saying he's the origin. The idea is the arch. Uh, the idea is I am not the beginning of creation. I'm, I'm the where, the where creation springs from. I am the origin of creation. That's the idea. He's the creator. That's what he's shooting at there. You can read about it more in Colossians. But in a, in a, so in one sense, the Lord could be affirming that he's not a created being. He is the origin of all creation. He's the beginning, just as Paul wrote in Colossians 1. But at the same time, Jesus could just be reminding his church in a very simple way that he is the truth and what he says and does is the truth and that he's the chief over all creation. Just reminding his church who's in charge. Amen? Yes. But no matter how you slice it, Jesus is emphasizing that he's the truth. And all of the church in Laodicea, they knew this. Their lives didn't reflect it. And that's what's going on here. And so after Jesus introduces himself, then he begins to point out what he sees in his church in Laodicea, what he sees in the church regarding their works, which actually is kind of the fruit of their faith, right? And he goes in verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither a cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Now the church in Laodicea, when they heard this, their minds instantly went to the picture that Jesus was painting because he was talking about something that they would totally connect with. And what made sense to them is their daily water situation. Their daily water situation, which was going on. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, Laodicea's water situation was pretty bad. Um, because their river dried up and they had their water shipped from a hot spring, uh, you know, five miles away, what had happened is the archaeologists, they, they kind of went in there and they found out where things came from. And they go, by the time the water got to the city, which had once been hot spring water, what do you think it was by the time it got to them? Lukewarm. And do you think in that piping system way back in, it picked up a few things along the way? Yeah. And so historians and archaeology talk about how this water was lukewarm, it was kind of putrid, and it was really useless in so many ways. They did their best, but it, it was nasty. And so what you had was a useless, lukewarm, tainted water. And so when Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, I wish you were either hot or cold, their minds would have gone to that gag reflex they had over their own water. That's what was going on. And Jesus is saying, obviously, the truth was that they were like that ugly city water they were dealing with or whatever that was. You know, their water wasn't cold like the springs in Colossae. Anybody like a cold drink of water on a hot day? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, nor boiling hot like... Heropolis's hot springs. How many like hot coffee? How many like cold coffee? You're weird. <laughs> no, there was that foul, dirty, and lukewarm water. And Jesus was letting them know that when he looked at their spiritual condition as a church, when he looked at them, when he looked at their works, which was the manifestation of their faith, what he saw, 
was they were like that lukewarm water to him. And Jesus says, would that you were either hot or uh, cold or hot. I wish you were hot or cold. And I, I wish you were one or the other. And you can look at it like this as well as we're looking at this, uh, that when the Lord says he wishes they would be cold or uh, hot or cold, he could be saying, I, I wish you were hot. And, and I think this, the emphasis is he desires to have a hot church uh, in that I wish you were hot, meaning someone who burns hot for the Lord. Um, those who are all in, they have a zeal for the Lord. I wrote this down. There is a hunger and a thirst for the Lord, for his kingdom, for his word and will, for his people to reach the lost. The hot would be those who have a zeal for the Lord as they fervently pray, wholeheartedly worship and live sacrificially. Those who sing to him from the overflow of their hearts, who look for opportunities to evangelize and they do it. Those who give joyfully, who are devoted to fellowship and confession and repentance and who look at a life through the lens of loving the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, you know? I mean, that's a, how many of you are, uh, you know, I mean, just, just tie it to your own relationships. (laughs) How many of you like a lukewarm friendship? How many of you like lukewarm marriage? How many of you like lukewarm relationships? Gosh, I wish you were all in or get out, don't you? I mean, that's just kind of how we are in the Lord, no less. Jesus wishes that they were spiritually hot, that they were warm. Jesus also wishes that they were even cold rather than lukewarm. That tells you how much he hates lukewarm. I'd rather that you'd even be cold, and the cold could be seen as those who are the unsaved, that are indifferent towards God, don't even care about God, probably even hostile towards God. I'd rather you be clearly on the other side, clearly antagonistic, clearly dead to the things of God than halfway in, than one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold, than lukewarm. Jesus wishes that they would be hot or even cold, but not lukewarm. The lukewarm are those who aren't against God, who aren't anti-worship, who aren't against Bible study in the Word or fellowship or prayer or evangelism and giving and all the other things that typify good works and, you know, the fruits of being a Christian and all that kind of stuff. But they're, they aren't against them, but they're really indifferent. There isn't a, a zeal. There's just a, yeah, I go to church. I'm not the church. I go to church. I went to Bible study. I didn't engage. I didn't, you know, and I'm just speaking to myself. How many of you struggle with that lukewarm in your own relationship with the Lord. But they'll go to church, they'll mumble the words, they'll go to study, they'll wear the Christian t-shirt, but a relationship with the Lord and His people and devotion to Him and a zeal to do His will, this isn't the priority for the lukewarm person or the lukewarm church. It's not their priority when it comes down to it. Some even believe that the lukewarm here are actually unbelievers. That could be possible. But Jesus passionately is opposed to a lukewarm believer, let alone a lukewarm church. He's totally opposed to it. That scares me. The church in Laodicea was a lukewarm church, a church that was neither hot nor cold for the Lord, and this was not okay with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus tells them what is going on, uh, what is going to happen to them as a result of their lukewarmness in verse 16. What does he say? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or or cold, I will what? 
I will spit you out of my mouth. Spit. Some of you have a different word in there. <laughs> Vomit. Yes. Let's spend five minutes on that. No. But does that give you a more vivid picture of what the Lord says he wants to do with a lukewarm church? Vomit is your body's violent rejection of something that makes it sick. Couldn't be any more stronger terms there. Lukewarm people in a lukewarm church makes Jesus violently ill. And he's going to get it out. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, an earnest warning against lukewarmness. I try not to quote Spurgeon, but he's good sometimes. You know, what can you do? Uh, <laughs> describing the lukewarm church, he says, They have prayer meetings, but there are few present, for they like quiet evenings home. When more attend meetings, they are still very dull, for they do, not, for they do their praying very deliberate and are afraid of being too excited. They are content to have all their things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They have many schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sort of sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. When they have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church, and if the chief quality of pillars be to stand still and exhibit no emotion or emotion... <laughs> The pastors do not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, uh, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace set, uh, setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead and alive way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. Things are respectably done. The rich families are not offended. The skeptical party is conciliated. Uh, and the good people are not quite uh, uh, are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as as to doing them with all your might and soul and strength, the Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or reject the gospel. They are neither too neither hot for the truth nor for the con conversions. Uh, nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. I don't know, dead men. Tell you what. Read more of them. But the half-hearted church is who Jesus is addressing here. And the Lord uses their own words against them to expose their lukewarm condition. Read what he says. The verse part is 17. For you say, what? I'm rich. I have what? I've prospered. And I have what? Need of nothing. Honestly ask yourself, am I that person? Hey, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I have need of nothing. I really don't have any needs. I'm, I'm good. The church thought that they were spiritually fine. You know? They thought this because they were equating their material condition with their spiritual condition. 
They thought they were well because of their material abundance. They were wealthy, prosperous, and in need of nothing. So they thought the Laodicean church was very rich. They had stuff when in reality their stuff had them. There's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with money. I just want you to know money is neither here nor there. But the love of money is something else. The pursuit of money, the elevation of money. You cannot serve God and man. And mammon, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You will love one and hate the other, the Lord says. One will have your heart. Either I will have you or your stuff and your pursuits will have you. And either I'm your pursuit or everything or something else is. In their pursuit of wealth, they had in their pursuit of wealth, they had lost their sense of need for the Lord. They didn't know, they'd become blinded, spiritually blind, that their need for the Lord. And, and the slow but sure deceitfulness of riches crept in and lulled them to sleep as a church. Really weird. Materialism had blinded them to their spiritual poverty. Poverty, But you see, Jesus, he sees through it all. He knows the true condition that we are in. He sees right through all that. And in his love and in his truth and in his witness of the truth, and as the creator over the church, he speaks to them and says, you're off. You've left me. You've, you've gone after some strange truth, whatever that is. Jesus says, you don't realize. Look at the rest, the rest of that verse. He says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, you know, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's your true condition before me. Could you imagine that, being this church, reading this? Everybody's happy. They're doing their thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. But everybody's kind of half-hearted about church. And it's a culture of half-heartedness. So no one really realizes that's going on. Everything's taken care of. They're good. All the stuff's done. And everybody's going, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How are you? You fine? I'm fine. Okay, everybody's fine. Great. And Jesus busts in with the letter. What does he say? You say this, but actually what I see is you're just totally, you're ruined. You're in such great need. You don't realize you have such need. They had become self-deceived. Jesus gives them their true condition. You're wretched. You're afflicted. You're miserable. You're actually destitute of wealth, of influence, of position, and honor. You are spiritually blind. You are not clothed spiritually. You're running around naked. You're actually, how you're, you're operating is shameful spiritually. What had happened there is somewhere along the way, they had replaced God's definition of spirituality with their own, with the cultures. It's subtle. It creeps in. And this tells me that the church was not receiving the Word of God accurately. Or there was some kind of false teaching that had crept in, that Gnosticism type stuff where materialism was okay. It didn't make a difference what you did in your practical life as long as you said the things and did the spiritual stuff. Let me say there's a difference between being taught out of the Bible and being taught the Bible. 
As a pastor, I can think of what I want to tell you. Do you know that? And I can go grab the verses to support what I want to say. And you don't know it. Isn't that dangerous? A lot of people don't know it. Yeah, I can, you know, so today I'm going to talk to you about money because I'm looking at the numbers and I see X, Y, and Z. And so obviously this church needs to get some more faith going and I'm just going to talk on money and preach on this and I'm going to manipulate you into what God says about this so you'll do it. That's one way of going about it. But then there's the other way of, of, of saying, I'm not going to tell you what you need. I, I want to tell you. I'm going to tell you what he says you need to have. You simply open the word and you teach through the Bible. And as you get to what he says, he says it. And I, I know there's, there's godly people who do it in different ways. But the idea is, God, what are you saying as opposed to what I want to say to you? Amen? Because you don't need Matt's opinion about this. You need your, your, your amen. Amen? You need the faithful and true witness. You need what he is saying. And to simply have, go through the word and we all get cut as we're handling it, that's the way it's supposed to be. We're under his teaching. And obviously, there's a, that can go in a thousand different directions and my purpose isn't to... But somehow it got in there where this became okay to be half-hearted in their devotion to the Lord. And maybe it was modeled, and maybe the pastor was blind to it, the leadership was blind to it, maybe whatever had happened, but there became a blasé church, and because all their needs were met, everything was okay. And No, man, we are to be what Jesus wants us to be. He does not want us to be lukewarm. I mean, I'm not preaching, to, you know, telling you what I want. I'm going, gosh, Matt, he doesn't want you to be lukewarm. Anyone else sitting there going, Lord Jesus, I want to be hot and on fire for you. Do that work in us. Because this is what you say you desire of your church whom you blood bought and redeemed for your namesake and for your glory. May we follow him. But there had been some kind of mess up there with the, the, the lie. And Jesus says the amen comes in and says, this is true. This is where you are. This is what I require. It's interesting. I think the name Laodicea means the, the people rule or people of the justice. Just kind of like a self-made type of thing. And that's what happens when the word of the Lord is replaced by the word of man or the culture of men. The people rule instead of the Lord. And priorities of the church become more about, more about people and what we want as opposed to what the Lord wants. Now you can't, we are people, right? <laughs> I know that sounds counterintuitive, but ultimately, this is all about Him, is it not? Yeah, and so as we minister to Him, as we seek Him, then guess what? All this stuff works out because He tells us how to minister to one another and what the priorities are of worship and of fellowship and all this type of stuff in our life as we seek Him first. But when a church starts to become cultural in the sense that they abandon the Word of God as opposed to, and, and go for what the culture says and let it influence them as opposed to what God is saying about that. You've got issues. 
because our priorities start to drift off into what people want and what the latest craze is and all that stuff. We don't want to be blind to those things, but we've got to let God rule those, those moments and the direction of the church. And the Lord tells them that you don't know your spiritual condition. You thought you were this. You'd been hearing something weird. You went off. You're actually lukewarm. This is where your true spiritual condition is. You're deceived. You're actually in great need. You're actually in great need. And so for us, maybe we've been, as individuals, been walking around going, hey, I, I think I'm good. I'm good. You're good. I'm good. And we just keep going on autopilot, but we know there's something nagging at us like this. is I'm, I'm not really all in for the Lord. I'm just going through the motions and all this thing. That's not right. That, the Lord doesn't want that. He wants you to be fervently excited about Him. And that's something you can't work up. That's something you can't produce in your own, I'm just going to get a habit. It's, it's a work of grace. God's got to work that into you. Well, how does that happen? Well, there is a part that we play. Verse 18, if you're lukewarm, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You want to be rich? You want to be clothed? You want to see? Come to me. You want to truly have riches? You want to truly be clothed? You want to truly have sight, spiritual sight? Come to me. And this is all code for one word, repent. That's all he's saying, repent. This is just different ways of saying what you are going to the world to try to fill the hole that cannot be filled, that actually is bankrupt. You've got to come to me. I'm the source of your life. Jesus is calling the church to repent, to acknowledge that they were deceived, to turn from their sin and to turn towards him for their great need. Amen? To buy refined gold from him. Again, they were a banking center. They went in every day and exchanged their money and did all this stuff. And that's where their wealth was. This is daily relationship with the bank or whatever it was. And the Lord is calling them to stop prioritizing earthly wealth and start prioritizing spiritual wealth. Him. Amen. And to be clothed by him, that their nakedness would be covered. They were all clothed in black wool. Jesus says, come buy to me, buy from me white garments. You can't buy anything from God, but he's just saying, come to me. Come do commerce with me. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you clothing. And, and obviously the whiteness symbolizes righteousness. His clothing. You've got the world's covering on you now. You need spiritual clothing. Come to me. You're naked. I will clothe you. I will give you what you don't have. I am willing to give it to you. I'm willing to make you rich, not with earthly riches. I'm willing to give you spiritual clothing, not the worldly clothing. I am willing to heal your sight, to give you spiritual sight. You go and you sell your little ointment and everything, and, and you think, oh, you're given sight. We know it's a hoax the end of the day, he will give us true sight to be able to see spiritually things of the kingdom. They were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked, and Jesus desired to make them rich in him and honored in him and righteous in him and truly elevated him and clothed in him 
if they would only see their need and repent and come to him for it all, and he was so willing to do it. Amen? Perhaps this is you this morning. Perhaps it's me. You have prioritized another pursuit above the Lord, and you have become lukewarm. Amen. Anyone? Just me again. I didn't hear very many amens there. And there was all amen. That was like a lukewarm amen. And now the Lord has shown you uh, your true condition. If that's you, if you feel a little beat up spiritually and you go, that's me. I feel like I'm a hypocrite. I've... Man, dial in on verse 19, will you? What does it say? Those whom I what? Oh, he loves you, church. He loves you lukewarm people out there. (laughs) Not up here. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. That word for zealous, same word for hot. Be hot and repent. Isn't that sweet? Hebrews 12, uh, 3 through 2, you can read that. There's some, sorry, Hebrews 12, 3 through 12, you want to write that down. Some great verses looking at the discipline of the Lord and how it's good. But the point there is that, listen, God doesn't discipline kids that aren't His. But if you're His kid, you're going to enter into His discipline. And the purpose of that discipline, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peace, peaceful root, uh, fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be hot, repent. Come to Him. Just make Him the focus of your life again. Prioritize Him above all else. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. How many of you have used that in evangelism? Totally true. Use it for evangelism. Jesus is knocking at the door. But who's he talking to here? The church. And where is Jesus? Can I come in? (laughs) To my church? Any one of you in there who wants to open the door right now, what is opening the door synonymous with? repenting. You want to open the door? I'm going to come in and what's going to happen? We're going to eat together. What is that? We're going to have fellowship. Lukewarm church does not have fellowship with the Lord. A cold church does not have fellowship with the Lord. A hot church has fellowship with the Lord. I'm not going to rename our church hot church or something like that. That's weird. (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about, right? We have fellowship with the Lord. We have fellowship with the Lord. Henry Morris said, the occupant must open the door. That is, he must repent of his pride and self-sufficiency, his human wisdom, and his cowardly neutrality. Yikes. So the picture here is repentance brings absolute restored fellowship with the Lord. That's what's being said here. Hear me knocking? Let's answer. Open the door. Amen, church? And we'll eat with him, we'll fellowship with him. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as also 
uh, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne and see Jesus was the forerunner. He conquered sin and temptation, all those things, and he was a seated uh, with the father. And so too, as we are born again and follow Christ, we too follow in his footsteps. As we overcome, as we repent, he, Jesus didn't repent, as we repent and follow him, we share in his rule and reign in his glory. The overcomer was promised to be seated with him on his throne. We will rule and reign with him. Amen? Another word of, another way of saying you have eternal life to all who overcome. He who has an ear, verse 22, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think I'll leave it there. As the Lord has said over and over and over, Man, his word is so good, isn't it? His spirit is is with his church. He's so faithful. Thank you, Lord. Father, we come before you. May we not be the the church that is sown among the thorns, that who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and the prove and we become unfruitful, useless. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. May you just have rule and reign in this place. May your joy be felt. May it just shake our hearts. May we be a church that is rooted in truth and overflowing with zeal for you, Lord. Thank you for this time in the past couple months going through these letters and I just pray we wouldn't be Lord that the word would be like a, a like that mirror that we look up at every day in the morning that we would just look at into it and see you and see where we need to change in order to be more like you and that by your grace that would be worked out in us so father be glorified this morning not just in our words and in all that, but in truly in a heart that is on fire for you. Re rekindle that flame within us, Lord. Prioritize your name, your glory, your kingdom above all else in our lives. Make that practical in everyday matters for us, Lord, as we're thinking about those things in our lives, the things that compete with you and the worry that we have about giving something up or making it second place. May we just trust you in that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, church. God bless you.